Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Here on the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast series, we try to get all sorts of interesting people with interesting stories to tell, some of whom you may not be familiar with, who might not be particularly well known. I think today's guest falls into that category. I have to admit, I hadn't heard of him until I met him a few months ago. But when the conversation was struck up, he was actually really interesting about his backstory, having left UCD and emigrated in the 1980s, his success as a businessman, particularly in putting fresh soup into containers, something you might take absolutely for granted now. And now for the future, he's involved in all sorts of investments in the food business as a mentor to businesses both here in Ireland and in the UK, but has a particular interest in a thing called vertical farming, which from an environmental and a food supply point of view is one of the most fascinating things I've heard about in a while. So join us today on Magnified with Matt Cooper. John Stapleton is the businessman who I'm talking to. John Stapleton, thank you very much for taking the time to join me for the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast. I met you for the first time back in May at a special conference that UCC had on sustainability and the future of food. And we ended up having a great chat on the evening before the morning session I was chairing down at Ballymaloo over a great meal. And I was absolutely fascinated, not just by your backstory as an entrepreneur, and we'll get to all of that in how you brought from very interesting ideas to soup production back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. But your involvement in a thing called vertical farming, which I had heard nothing about, which struck me as been fascinating as to the future of food production and the, given the population growth in the world, feeding the world. Tell us about vertical farming and your involvement in it. Sure thing. And thanks, Matt, for having me along. Great opportunity to carry on the conversation that we had back in May in, in Ballymaloo and had a, a wonderful evening. Um, you know, you're not, you're not alone to, to not know really much about vertical farming because it's not really well understood. People think about, think they know what it means. And a lot of time people, from a consumer perspective, think it means kind of greenhouse growing or something like that. And it's nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's a relatively high-tech, high-capital-intensive um, production and growing uh, philosophy uh, and the technology has been around for a while but really only in the last few years has come to fruition and it really is implementable on a, on a commercial scale <clears throat> and I didn't know much about it either frankly it's a new project for me I've been in the food industry as you mentioned at 35 plus years and really it was only three years ago that I began to have serious conversations with people about this and, and really over lockdown it began to gather momentum because I had some time on my hands like lots of people did and there was some uh, opportunity or room for new projects if you like um, and I got chatting to some people, all remotely, over a sport space of about three or four, or maybe even six months, before I actually physically met anybody from the business. The business is called Fisher Farms, and it's based in the UK. And I actually live in, in Germany, but a lot of my business interests are, are in the UK, and increasingly more in, in Ireland as well, which we'll get a chance to talk about. But the whole vertical farm project and, and, and context is really, really interesting. It's a, it's a pioneering technology, but has come of age, as far as I'm concerned. And what it involves, really, is the growing in hydroponic medium, which means water, um, growing in hydroponic medium, so not soil, uh, indoors under lights. 
and it's called vertical farming because typically you would stack these trays of products that would grow. And we grow, for example, green leafy things, so salads and, and herbs. And that's the majority of what's grown right now in, in the vertical farming um, context. And you stack these trays under lights up as high as you want, hence the word vertical. Um, but the whole idea is... So how high would it go? A typical building that you would have for Fisher, and if you were to come to Ireland, if you were looking yeah. to have a building, how big would it be? It's a bit of a misnomer, this vertical farming context, really, because it, it traditionally up to now has grown, or has you've built factories or built growing environments or built farms up to about 15, 16 metres high, so quite, quite tall. But actually, that's not as efficient as originally was thought. And what we do, still build big farms. We're building the biggest in the world, actually, in, in, in Norfolk right now. At least we think it's the biggest in the world. Um, we grow out rather than grow up. And traditionally, the idea was you build this vertical farm in or very close to an urban environment so that the air miles would be reduced and you grow to supply that local consumer base. Um, commercially, that doesn't really work terribly well because commercial properties in cities or in um, inner cities or urban environments are, are still expensive. So if you can find cheap land and grow out, then that's much better. Uh, and also the environment is easier to control. And this is one of the points that the environment, it's kind of like having a, a health spa for, 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 for vegetables or for fruit, or in our case, for green leafy salads. So you generate the best possible environment. You have a, a hotel for, to create the best possible growing environment for, for these vegetables. So you control everything that can be controlled. So it's very um, consistent. So the atmosphere, the temperature, the humidity, the, the, the lighting, the intensity of the lighting, the lighting comes on and comes off to mirror our um, days and nights, and you can play around with that. So all the conditions you need to optimize the growing uh, um, conditions, if you like, of, of whatever you happen to be growing, in our case, uh, green leafy salads or, 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 or herbs, you do that, right? And it's easier to do that in a, in a lower, longer building than in a taller, more narrow building. Okay, but as you do that, and then... You're not using soil, so you're not using pesticides Correct. or anything like that. So how do you actually grow the food? And then how many crops can you get in a year as distinct from crops you'd actually get if you were growing in a traditional manner in soil? And that's where the great benefit comes in. Yeah, first of all, this is a, pro- this is a sustainability project on steroids, as far as I'm concerned, because everything about it is, is, <clears throat> is clean. We, as you mentioned, we don't have pesticides because we don't have pests. We use typically 3% of the water than you would in a, in a, in a regular you know, tillage, in a regular farm. You don't 3%? Have 3% of the water, yeah, absolutely. How can you get it so low? Well, it's all to do with recycling, right? This hydroponic technology means that the, 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 the roots of the plant, in this case, let's say, call them salad, grow down and grow into water, which is being pumped underneath in a little tray, right? And then they suck up the nutrients, which you put purposefully into the water, yeah? And then they grow. And then they grow under the lights, so the leaves come out the other end, underneath the lights, and that's where the photosynthesis takes place, right? So, so that's why it's, 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 so, it's so economically um, beneficial, but also from a sustainability point of view, it's really, diff- really easy to control. So 3% of the water, which is really just what evaporates under the lights, is what's lost. Um, whereas in a normal farm, you'd have rain, and it would run off, and you'd use an awful lot more well, water during a regular, in, a, in a regular farm environment. Number, no, uh, and then the third point is really the whole issue about energy itself. 80% of the cost of running the farm is turning on the lights, frankly, because that's where the photosynthesis takes place, and that's where the huge energy requirement is. So if you link your energy requirement up to your energy source, which is renewable energy, then you've got a fantastic sustainability um, argument, right? That's interesting, because after you told me about it, I actually started doing some reading about this and about places like New Jersey, where they're actually 
doing something similar with salads, which supplying to the restaurants in New Jersey and New York on a following day basis. But the big issue seems to be electricity generation, power generation, that unless you actually have your own way of generating, these could be as controversial as data centres are proven to be in Ireland at present because they use so much electricity. That's right. That's right. And, you know, New Jersey is called the Garden State, not for... You know, it's not by accident they're just called the Garden State. You know, they've got a lot of uh, historical experience of, of, of growing for the large conurbations in the area, and they're moving more and more to, to, to vertical farming because they can see the benefits in that. Um, the, the point about you, first of all, it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, strong um, sustainability argument, right? So, so the, 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 the focus on sustainability is, is, is clear and the benefits of that. Also, from a food security point of view, it's really, really important. And, you know, okay, we're building our farm in, in the UK. And in a post-Brexit UK, it's, it's really important to, to, be, to, be, to see how we can help the UK to be self-sufficient, never mind the problems that they've got, you know, self-induced or self-implemented um, or otherwise. The, the issue is that it's more and more difficult now to feed the nation from a UK perspective. So given Brexit has added fuel to the flames of, of the food security problem. But even on a grosser, uh, on, a, on a larger uh, scale, you've got the problem of, as you mentioned earlier, population uh, growth. Like if I go back to when my father was born, 1928, Back then, there were 2 billion people on the planet. Uh, in about 20 years, there'll be 8 billion people on the planet. And not only that, in terms of going from 2 to 8, but of those 8 billion, 4 billion are middle class, which is fantastic in terms of growth of you know, wealth and growth of opportunity. Um, but how do, you, uh, how do you feed the needs of 8 billion and also those 4 billion middle class um, of the population who are, who are consumption heavy, right? Um, and they're you know, generating wealth, but also need uh, a lot of consumption or generate a lot of consumption to, to, to feed their existence. The problem is that we've got too many people on the planet to actually feed those people in a sustainable way. In other words, without trashing the planet in the process. And if you add climate change to the problem, it's like, it's like again, pouring, pouring oil on the flames of that particular problem. And I'm not saying that vertical farming will answer all that, but it's certainly one route to answering it because of its efficiency, sustainability, and the answer um, as part of a food security problem long term. Just on the efficiency thing, and how, how many crops of salad, for example, could a farmer get in a conventional way as against how many crops can you actually produce per annum? Right. And that's the other key piece in terms of efficiency. How much can you grow? And uh, we can grow... Take rocket. I mean, different plants have different cycles, of course, but rocket is a good average to use. Um, 21 to 26 days is how long it takes to get rocket to, 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 to the point where you can harvest it. Let's say 21 days. And then majority of rocket, you, actually, you can actually grow again. So you can reharvest. So you can go through three or four cycles before you start getting to a point where the quality begins to tail off. So... And a cycle then, when you get to 21, would be roughly seven more days, so 28, and then you take it to 35 days. And so you get to take it to 42 days, you can get three easily, three harvests, if not four harvests, within 50 days. And that's probably the maximum. So four harvests in 50 days, you can figure out how many cycles of 50 days you can get in a year compared to a regular, you know, uh, in a field environment, which is going to be you know, three or four through the early part of the season and maybe five or six more towards the back end of the season, depending on how the weather works. And the weather is obviously... Because crops know, get lost in the normal situations. Well, first of all, you've got all the problems of, 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 of flood or getting tractors into fields and all that issues, which is a variable. But even in a good, in a good season, you know, you're never going to come close to the output and the consistency that a vertical farm can, can provide. So you can get multiple harvests over much shorter periods of time because the environment is, is, 
is absolutely designed for that particular crop. What about labour issues? Because traditionally a lot of farmers would cavil against the idea of these sort of new technological innovations because it might have implications on jobs and labour. But you mentioned the UK. I've been reading a lot about a lot of harvests been lost in the UK right. this year because they simply, particularly for fruit and vegetable, they don't have enough pickers available. That's right. Yeah, that, that's happening across the board in a whole, a whole range of different um, farming environments in the UK. They've got real problems. Speaking to the FDF, the Food and Drink Federation, they've got real problems. First of all, a lot of the pickers on a seasonal basis have gone through mostly COVID-related uh, factors, but haven't come back mostly through Brexit-related factors, right? So it's doubly, doubly difficult to get that seasonal labour that they relied upon, that the, that the British farming uh, and, and harvesting, and ag and food industry relied upon for so many years. And in fact, they probably over-relied upon it and then didn't really invest in the infrastructure in the in, in the industry in general, in, in, in the ag sector in particular, over many years, because they have that access to cheap labour. Now that that's been throttled back significantly, there is a real problem. And that's one of the other areas where vertical farming can come in. It's very, very expensive to build a vertical farm. That's one of the problems, one of the challenges, put it this way. It's a capital-intensive project. But once you do build it, you don't need anybody to run it because it's all automated. You know, the entire growing and harvesting and then packing process is all run by robots. Yeah? So it's, it's, it's a very easy, once you get it right, once you get the, get the programming right, it's very easy to maintain that. So you get the consistency right, and you don't, need, you don't need the staff. What sort of capital investment is required to build one of these? It kind of depends on how big the farm is, but, but if you take the farm we're building in Norfolk, which is a big one, it's about 25 million sterling. Um, and that's normally not possible from a startup perspective, but this is a startup with a difference. This, this is, oh, we're not the only vertical farm business in the UK or, or in the world, of course. Um, but there's a lot of investment coming through uh, into this sector because the, the private equity in, 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 in general and in particular and, and other investment sources in general recognize the return on the investment. Now that this technology has come of age, you can actually apply this technology today. Right? And you can grow green leafy things like we are. And we've got a vision to grow into the future, not just salad or even soft berries or even vegetables. But ultimately, let's say 15 to 20 years time, we believe the technology will exist and it'll exist at a commercial scale to allow us to, to actually grow soy, rice and wheat indoors. And that'll be really interesting because then we can place these vertical farms growing those sort of crops in regions of the world, back to food security again, regions of the world where they're sorely needed. And now, you know, you can get into environments where you can see it right now already with the Ukraine crisis and, and Northern Africa rely heavily. Egypt buys 100% of its grain, did at least, from Ukraine. Now, there's clearly a problem there next, next season when there's no harvest coming out of, well, there's no output coming out of Ukraine because there's no harvest, nothing being sown this, this particular season. So what are they going to do? I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but part of the answer in the medium term to long term is that we can build vertical farm um, entities next door to very large solar panels, which of course in that part of the world is not a problem in terms of cheap energy, uh, and then create an indigenous industry to feed the population and keep them where they are, where they want to be. Which would suggest from an environmental point of view as well that there would be less transportation of food, vast distances, that food needs can be met 
or a vast bulk of them could be met in each domestic local market. Exactly. Up until today, we've thought about vertical farming as, you know, let's build a vertical farm, you know, in, in, in Dublin or in Cork or in Belfast or in London or in Birmingham and satisfy the, the, the needs of each local population. Now, the retail environment doesn't necessarily work like that. So it doesn't really, mean, it doesn't really matter where you build it, as long as you build it pretty close to cities. And most of the network of motorways in Ireland and the UK, you know, service that. But it does come into its own when you, when you talk about what you just mentioned. Absolutely. So building those vertical farm um, facilities attached to, to solar farms or wind farms, depending, on, depending on, on, on the environment, close to urban regions in North Africa or in um, Middle East or in Southeast Asia. And you can think of all sorts of regions which are, you know, first of all, arid perhaps and have over-reliance on importation of, of, of staples, which is why I'm talking about long-term soy or rice or, or, or wheat production, um, and also unstable governments and also real problems in terms of you know, the effect that climate change is having on those particular disadvantaged regions. So we think longer term, and this is a very much a long-term um, strategy and long-term vision, that we can be part of the solution to feed the world. And that's a, that's a, that's a rather you know, altruistic claim to make. But we think it's absolutely within grasp. But we've got to start today growing salad in Norfolk. What about the fear that some people might have that you're creating Frankenstein foods, <laughs> that these aren't really real? It's a, it, it's a good question. And we've been very fearful and conscious of that being a problem. And we've asked, we've provoked, and we've kind of asked people you know, what they thought. And we, never, we haven't actually got that response. We, 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 we've thought about it as a, as a potential problem. Um, in terms of perception, it's not an actual problem at all. Um, and some people also say, that, oh, you know, not only that, but you're going to put traditional farmers out of business. We're absolutely not. It'll be a long, long, long time before, you know, vertical farming will be able to supply anything like the, the, the entire demand of, of, of never mind um, salad, but also all the, all the products that are grown in the fields these days. Definitely not the case. I'm a farmer's son myself, so that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be something that would be in my interest. But in terms of back to your point about Frankenstein food, it's like, well, so what are you doing to it that's weird? And we're not doing anything to it weird at all. We're creating the optimum environment yeah. in, indoors. So all we're doing is allowing the plant to grow in its optimum environment, which actually in nature you don't get very often, especially in countries like Ireland, because the weather plays a huge part. And you don't get, you don't get all these uh, disease and pesticides, uh, pest-related pro pest problems that you have to then dose with using pests. And the water problem in other parts of the world really is a problem. So, uh, and also you, you get, you get consistency of product as well. We had Evine and Isolt from Food Cloud here for a podcast a few months ago, and they were talking about the amount of food that's wasted because simply consumers don't want things with certain shapes or looks and colours, and there's an awful lot of edible good food gets wasted because of that. Presumably, you would actually have uh, be able to monitor the growth and development of the various crops and have an enormous amount of consistency and less food waste because of that. That's right. And there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, I could keep coming back, I keep repeating myself, but really this optimum environment within the, the, the farm is so important because you don't have to then play with other things to, to, to try and optimise the environment like you have to uh, outdoors. Um, we have a much, long, a much better quality product. It lasts fresher for longer, which means it has a longer shelf life. Um, now, what does that mean? That means that when you buy your bag salad, think about it, you know, you know this from your own experience. You, know, you buy it and you put it in the fridge and you want to use it three days later and what happens, it's like gone out of its life. Maybe it hasn't even gone out of its life, but it still looks pretty, pretty rubbish and, and you throw it away. Uh, and that happens a lot. It happens a lot in fresh produce. It happens a huge amount in Greek because they're very sensitive um, um, products, green leafy products like that. Um, herbs maybe less so, but, but certainly bag salads. And the other issue is 
bit of a technical point here, but we grow our salads ready to eat, which means we don't need to wash them. Right? Now, you grow stuff in the farm, you, you know, you've got everything in the farm and, and, and more besides, so you have to actually wash them before you put them in a bag. Uh, a lot of time, washing them actually makes them uh, even more contaminated than, than they would have been otherwise, because you're taking everything in. You're taking in relatively clean stuff with pretty, pretty dirty stuff, and you're mixing it all together, and so you've got a, a common denominator, if you like, of reducing the load or the dirt nature of all of the salad to, to a certain point. So some salad, which is pretty clean, is going to actually be be more dirty than that otherwise would be the case. And when you wash salad, it just damages the salad. You know, you, by the way, there's nobody there washing salad like you do in a sink. It's in a very large scale. So you've got machines washing the salad. Uh, and the problem is that, that reduces the shelf life. It makes it less, less robust, uh, less, it's, it's much more sensitive. And that might work if you're putting it into a sandwich. But if you're putting it into a bag that's meant to last five days, guess what? it'll reduce the shelf life even more. So our product, you know, we, we don't have to wash it because it's not dirty, because it's clean, because of the, of the environment we generate. It's, it's, it's a clean environment. You know, there are no pests, no dust, no, no insects. There's nothing there to contaminate the product that we then need to decontaminate for. So you're getting it as nature's best. Are you going to open one of these in Ireland? We'd love to open one of these in Ireland. And that's not just a, a blithe response. We'd love to. We're very busy building this one in Norfolk. And we'll probably build a few more in Norfolk because demand is huge. We're talking to all the retailers in, in, in the UK. But we're also talking to the backers. We have got um, some, some very serious financial backers we need to. Like I, uh, I explained, it costs 25 million sterling to build one. And we're probably going to build three or four of them. Uh, and uh, during that process, I'd love to build one in Ireland. Absolutely. And... The financial backers that we're using in London, there's also an office here, uh, and they're looking at it seriously and talking to... The other issue is, it's not just a question of finding a site and building. You need to be lo uh, close to or local to either existing or very future um, planned uh, solar panel farm or renewable energy source uh, um, um, electricity. Which is a major issue in this country, the amount of data centres and the amount of energy that they use. I can imagine there might be the same complaints if you were to have vertical farming initiatives in Ireland. People who ask, how much energy would you actually be using and where would you get it from? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so that, you know, that's something we need to consider carefully and think about the pros and cons. Yeah. So, and we, we, we've been doing that in the UK and, you know, so we've got the experience of what you need to look, look at and what you need to consider. And so we're looking at the same. But, but to your point of you know, we could build these farms next somewhere in the region of Dublin, back to your point of being close to urban, urban centres, and then the food miles are reduced. But, you know, also we could, we could really grow these, or build these farms and grow these products anywhere in Ireland and just get on, on, the, on the roadway, on the motorway system. So they're further, further away from urban problems, but urban regions, and then therefore create fewer problems, or at least fewer perceived problems. I can imagine, though, some farmers here in Ireland complaining about the idea that it would put them out of business or whatever or would be unfair competition. What sort of reaction have you had from farmers in the UK to your existence? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So we, we got involved with, um, I can't remember the name of the organisation now, but they basically um, organise and represent the needs of um, and the interests of young farmers, particularly young farmers. And we tucked them to our... Is there an English mocker in the farm? Yeah, it? exactly. It is. It's, a, it's Oh, it's the old field group is not that. Uh, it'll come to me. But it's, it's, it's exactly that, yeah. And, 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 and we, we thought, right, let's have these guys come in and, and let's explain to, you know, what, what, what it is we do. And they loved it, you know. Okay, the younger farmers maybe have different perceptions of maybe the more traditional farmers might have. Having said that, they were very keen on understanding the technology and, and they were very keen on maybe getting involved with it and very keen to find out how they can become more sustainable from the lessons that we've learned about our sustainability drives. And there was, there was not one of them said, well, hang on, you know, 
in 10 years' time, I'm going to be out of business. We, we, we see that they saw very much, and we didn't put the words in their mouth at all. We we're very, very pleased that they saw this as a complementary technology to what they've been doing for many generations. Um, and that was, that was the younger farmer. Um, What sort of farm did you grow up in in Ireland? I grew up in a yeah in Roscommon in a in a dairy excuse me it was it was dairy to to an extent but really it was a beef farm so no tillage I mean you don't get that much tillage in 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 Connacht frankly the, the the land doesn't support it so it was yeah it was a it was a beef farm so what we had was a herd of herd of cows my dad used to buy in calves to run with the cows so you'd end up with when they would calve each cow would then support two if not three calves over the duration until they grew up went to pasture grew up to be two years of store bullocks if you like and then got sold to typically farmers from from me either from from the east would fatten them up further and then you know they'd go to slaughter so it was a beef farm so how did you end up in food production rather than actually farming that's a really nice question um it leads into all sorts of different directions i mean i guess i could have got into farming um one of the issues though with farming in, in 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 roscommon or in the west of ireland is that yeah, you don't really make much of a living out of it. Um, you, the best way to make a living out of farming in, in that neck of the woods is get out of farming and get into forestry. Or you know, because my brother has the farm now and he's built a whole bunch of walnut uh, trees and things like that. And there's still plenty of of of, of land that's, that's farmed as well. But um, it it, it doesn't doesn't have a huge return, right? Um, so for me, uh, in terms of getting into the food industry, okay, I grew up in, well, what, the 70s and the 80s. I went to school, went to university in UCD. Uh, I studied industrial microbiology. Uh, and, you know, like everybody else, we were sitting there looking at what do we do with these degrees that we've got. Now, industrial microbiology, in hindsight, was a pretty nifty degree because it, 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 it prepared you for things like biotech uh, or genetic engineering. But back in 86, we weren't sure if those two industries were going to take off or just going to be... It was an interesting and unusual choice, perhaps, in those days, was it? Uh, well, let me tell you why I... D- OK, let me go right back. I mean, I went to UCD purely because UCD happened to have the best track and field facilities as a university in Ireland. So that was the extent of my consideration, <laughs> academically at any rate, of what I was going to do and then how I was going to use it. So, uh, you know, I- academically and, cr- and, and, and from a career point of view, those choices weren't very high on my, on my, on my priority list. Like, I, I came out of boarding school, I did a lot of track and field, and I wanted to continue to do it. And I was really motivated, and it was fantastic. Don't, so don't get me you, wrong. you competed for Ireland in I track did, and field, I didn't you? I did in, in, the, in the triple jump and the long jump. You know, talk about uh, obscure degrees and then obscure things to have, to have done. But yeah. But I, how, I you were a sprinter, so, because it's sprinters, and I mean, from the 80s, I think we all remember the likes of Carl Lewis. That right. That's right, from the 100 metres and also the triple jump and long jump. Yeah. That's right, that's right. Yeah, he converted the, the speed into, in, into long jump. And he was one of my idols at the time. Daley Thompson was the other day. I, you know, all those names. People maybe of our age will remember them. Um, other people were thinking, who am, I, who am I talking about? But yeah, er, late 70s, particularly early 80s, I was in Gormiston, uh, went to Gormiston. They had fantastic facilities as well. That was purely by accident. Yeah, they had, for, for, a, for a secondary school in the, in the 80s, they had really good sports facilities, particularly track and field. And I just took to it like a duck to water and, and no turning back. And at, it 
well, I was going to say perhaps it, but it almost certainly, you know, uh, put all my academic efforts in the shade. Uh, and I focused very much on track and field, but I got a huge amount out of it, a lot in terms of self-confidence and application of, you know, training and, and uh, much, much more besides. So I wouldn't really change any of that. Um, and then led to, okay, what do I do next? Do my leaving search, which was kind of like by the by, because I was training and going to all these international competitions, which was, you know, really exciting. Um, but I then had to go and go to university. But the university was a place to go to further my track and field rather than to, to, to get a qualification, really. And, and yeah, so I had to be UCD because they had a track. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a track anymore, which is a shocking state of affairs, but, but I'm about to get it back again, I think. Um, but, but, but then it was definitely, you know, that was a place to go. First of all, Dublin was a, was a cool place to go. Gormerson wasn't very far from Dublin, so I knew a lot about it, and it was a very easy step and straightforward step for me to take, and that's why I went to UCD. And then I studied industrial microbiology, like I said, and, and you know, that could have taken me a number of different ways. Um, and, and those two areas, we weren't quite sure if they were going to be, you know, <clears throat> buzzwords and never be heard of again, because our professors were telling us biotech is going to be big and genetic, genetic engineering is going to be big. And we were going, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. They both were. Yeah, look, at, look what's happened to them now. But food was always going to be big, quite, you know, obviously on the basis that everybody's going to have to eat and drink. So food was never going to go out of fashion. Um, and so I said, you know what, um, it'd be pretty cool if I could actually do food because I was quite interested in food from a, from a kind of a weird perspective at the time. I think we talked about this back in, 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 in Cork, but I, I got really interested because I had a, what was called a, a CUSPOR scholarship. CUSPOR scholarship. It came from the Department of Education. It was a scholarship to go to university or third level back in the 80s, and you got a whole bunch of stuff paid for you. Um, and it was a sports-related not just track and field, but sports-related scholarships. So it was great. And I got really interested in sports nutrition and the performance of elite athletes way before it became fashionable. We're talking about the 80, 84, 85, 86. So for me, the relationship between performance and athletics and training and nutrition, well, well, it was something I was always interested in. So I thought it would be pretty cool if I could combine my, my, my interests and my passion and my, um, you know, my, what I did in my spare time uh, into a career. And that's why, you know, that came from. And then I went to Reading University in the UK and studied food science, which was just a one-year course. So then, I, so then I was ready to kind of apply all this knowledge, I guess, in the food industry. And that's what led to New Covent Garden Soup. Um, yeah, getting to the New Covent Garden Soup, was that almost straight away um, when you started working? I mean, you went immediately to be an entrepreneur to create your own product, or did you work for other businesses first? No, I didn't work for anybody. I'd never worked for anybody, which is part, part, part of a problem at times, I think, for me. But I, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, Matt. It was simple as that, jokingly. Um, I met this guy called Andrew Palmer. And there's a story here. Andrew Palmer, was, uh, he, he was the guy who had the idea to make fresh soup, right? I, I didn't have the idea to make fresh soup, but when I met him, it was a kind of an infectious conversation that we had about, well, why wouldn't you want to make fresh soup? And, and so... Sorry, just for a second, because I'm sure there are lots of people listening, maybe younger than us, who will be going, fresh soup mm. as a sort of an mm. idea. But I suppose that was the era when you had tin soup, wasn't it? Right. Highly processed, and you could literally open it and heat it any stage over the next year, and it would be considered edible. That's right. I, uh, and you're quite right to stop me there because, because, you know, fresh soup is ubiquitous now. So people think, what, what do you mean fresh soup? It's been around forever if you're 30 or 40. Like, it, it, it absolutely is the case. Back in 1986 or 87, all liquid soup was in a can. That's just the way it was. It was in a can. 
and, and you know, trying to convince somebody that they could buy fresh soup or fresh soup was a thing even, didn't really make sense. So people who... Sorry, fresh soup was something you got when you went out to a hotel or a restaurant, which might have been rare enough in those days as well, or something that you made for yourself at home if you had the skills. That, that's what fresh soup was. You made it yourself or you bought it in a restaurant, right? Um, there was no, it just didn't exist to buy it in, in, in a retail environment, buy it in a shop and take it home and cook it yourself or warm it up yourself. So there was a huge amount of convenience attached to, you know, the, the, the new Covent Garden offer. Um, so, so back to, new, to, to, to Reading. So Andrew had this idea and he came to Reading University, in fact, to seek some advice because Reading University was a centre of excellence for food and food science. That's why I went there to, to, to study it in the first place. And it was a very interesting conversation, I believe. I wasn't actually in the room at the time, but Andrew was an archetypal entrepreneur. He came to Reading to ask the scientists a whole bunch of questions about what he was about to do or what he was going to do and you know, the whole concept of fresh soup. And of course, an entrepreneur asking a scientist about a crazy new idea is exactly the wrong place to start because a scientist is going to go, what are you talking about? I mean, and give you a whole bunch of reasons why it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, for, for example, the scientists told us, and I could understand this because I was a scientist myself, right? They said, uh, if, you don't, if you don't sterilize liquid soup, you'll kill somebody. You know, liquid soup is in a can for a reason, guys. It's in a can so that, you know, it has 18 months shelf life. It's safe. It's been, it's, been, it's been sterilized, you know. And if you don't sterilize it, you will actually kill somebody. The problem with sterilizing liquid soup in a can is that you have to heat the living daylights out of it, yeah, to, to cook it, to sterilize. And you ruin the entire flavor profile. You also kill the nutritional quality, but you ruin the entire flavor profile. So you've got to put other things back into it to make it taste of what it should have tasted like. You know what I mean? And we wanted our soup to taste of the ingredients we use in the, in the product. So, so just say, for example, which maybe I remember from growing up, a, a tin of tomato soup. Good choice, yeah. Right? So that would have been sterilized, but then to make it taste like tomato soup, there would have had to have been loads of additional things pumped back into it, flavorings and all the rest of it. It's a, it's, that's an interesting choice to take, tomato soup, because tinned tomato soup, and everybody is familiar with it, and kids love it, and there's a very good reason for that. It doesn't taste anything like fresh tomato soup, because what you do with tinned tomato soup is you, 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 you add a whole bunch of sugar to it for a start, um, and, the, and that's what gives it flavor, and then you heat it, quite high temperatures for quite a period of time, that caramel caramelizes the, the, the onions, but also caramelizes the, the sugar, and you get this nice kind of sweet flavor, um, which is great for canned soup. But if you go and make um, fresh soup at home, it doesn't taste like that at all, because you don't add any sugar, it doesn't caramelize, it tastes like kind of almost a little bit bitter, you know, acidic, kind of tinny, sort of, um, it's like grilled tomatoes, right? that kind of a flavor. Because that's what tomatoes taste like, right? And you put some basil in or whatever you put in, and it tastes perfectly normal. But back then, it was a very unusual flavor. Uh, combination, unless you bought it in a restaurant, unless you cooked it yourself. And we actually thought that we were, perhaps, and so did a lot of the canned soup manufacturers, that we were going to launch a product to be in competition with canned soup. But it wasn't, because the canned soup guys continued to buy canned soup because they were happy with the flavor of it. And a whole bunch of new consumers that didn't buy soup at all started to buy fresh soup because it answered the, 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 the problem they had of how do you cook soup at home. So they, were, they, they would not have bought canned they wanted to have the flavor of the ingredients that we use, not the process. We didn't want the soup to taste of the process that was used to make it safe or to give it a long shelf life, which is where cans come in. And that's where you're typically 
cream of tomato or cream, cream of chicken would, would, would taste like. So that was our concept. That was Andrew's concept. So we had to go and figure out a process to deliver that and still at the same time not kill anybody. Yeah, okay. So you have to come up with the recipe to make an effectively or good tasting soup. You have to come up with a means of producing it. You have to come up with a means of packaging it. Yeah. You then have to actually sell it to various supermarkets so you can get on the shelves. An enormous amount of things to be done, a lot of money required. And there's you, what age? Yeah, it would be 1987, so I'd be, what, 23? Yeah. Okay, so was that an advantage in some respects, almost sort of the naivety? It was exactly that. It was a huge advantage in hindsight. At the time, I thought, oh, crikey, I mean, how do I get, how do I do this? Uh, How do I, you know, I don't know anything about anything, frankly. I know I have a little bit of uh, knowledge of the theory of food, because I've done a, a degree in it, but I've got no practical experience in it. So, so it'd be great if, if we could find somebody who could do all the practical stuff. But actually, the benefit was that I didn't know anything about anything, and I didn't know certainly anything about the food industry. Because once you look at this, it's like, it's like when you're climbing a mountain, you know? If you don't really know how high that mountain is until you're at least halfway up, you kind of, well, you don't come back down, you just keep going. But if you're looking at the bottom of the mountain, you think, right, that's a long way up. You know, I leave this to somebody who's better prepared, who's climbed the mountain before, um, and not do it. Um, there's a great benefit in, 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 um, in, in not knowing enough about an industry. And ignorance is bliss, absolutely. I don't think we would have got out of the blocks if we had realised the extent of the challenge that was facing us. Just tell us about making the soup, though, and then what sort of packaging you used and getting the soup cleanly without yeah. spilling into the package. Yeah, and, and, and that was our hu- biggest challenge of the lot. It, it, you know, the recipe you mentioned earlier on, that wasn't the challenge because you could figure that out. You could go, you know, we, none of us could cook you know, terribly well. We weren't culinary experts, but lots of people were. So we could develop a recipe. The issue was um, not cooking the living daylights out of it to end up with a canned soup, but actually just cooking it enough to make it safe, pasteurizing it in effect, not sterilizing it. And then we wanted to convey this freshness, you know, go back 40 years, which is difficult for a lot of people, but liquid soup was in a can. Fresh soup didn't exist. So we were going to put this soup into the chiller and then kind of convey to the consumer that this is a really good thing that they should buy. Whereas it's like weird. It doesn't exist. It shouldn't be there. It's like, why put it in a carton? Why put it in the chiller? when there's already a destination in the retail aisle, in, in, in the retailer, which is called the soup aisle. So people want to buy soup, guess what? They'll go to where the fine soup, which is called the soup aisle. And that's what a lot of experts told us. They say, you're crazy. This already exists. Consumers understand where to buy soup. It's and in, soup and in a supermarket, you would presumably also require to go into a chill section as yes, well, wouldn't yeah. you? Which, of course, then makes it more expensive again exactly. as a product to sell to people. Exactly, exactly. And we, we, we were fine with that to a certain extent. We were fine with it being a premium. Now, if you go back to those days, a can of soup cost 33 pence sterling, and we were selling our soup for £1.10. So it wasn't the premium, really. It was three times premium, which is way out there. So we didn't want to draw too many comparisons with canned soup, because people would say, guess what? You're crazy. So number one, uh, it's, it's, it's not sterilized. You kill somebody. Number two, it's not, in the, it's not where the soup is meant to be, so people won't find it. Number three, you want to put in a carton. Uh, soup doesn't go in a carton. Milk goes in a carton. Maybe juice goes in a carton. But soup doesn't go in a carton. But we wanted to convey the fact that it was fresh. We said, yeah, milk goes in a carton because it's fresh. And soup, uh, soup should go in a carton too because people will then see it and they go, they'll be confused maybe to start with, but they'll, the carton will scream freshness to the consumer uh, without even seeing the words fresh soup, which actually those two words didn't make any sense together in those days, right? So we wanted the carton to say, I'm in the chiller, I'm in a carton, so I should be fresh. 
Oh, and now I'm soup. Okay, buy me. Because we were convinced if they just buy it once and they take it home, they would be blown away by the flavor and the, and the quality. And they were. That's, I mean, we were hopeful. <laughs> we didn't know for sure. We, we've just, if we can convince enough people to buy it once, we get a lot of repeat purchase. And ultimately, that's what happens. But the big problem, back to your question, was how do we get soup in the carton to start with? So it wasn't the recipe and it wasn't the, the concept. It was physically putting liquid soup with bits in it into cartons which were designed for liquid milk with no bits in it really it was as simple as that and presumably as well when the milk is filled into the cartons the milk is cold but your soup was it still hot no it was very hot we had to we used the soup to actually do the pasteurization of the carton just to kind of clean the carton in a weird sort of way so i think it was 75 degrees for 15 seconds we had to, we had to have that contact temperature so it was very hot and the more uh, the hotter a liquid is, the less viscous it is, viscous it is, and therefore it's less thick, so it affords less support to bits floating around. And you get into all sorts of fluid dynamics and all sorts of stuff here where you wouldn't believe what you get into. You're just, you're trying to fill soup into. Our and car. did you have to design a machine then to effectively to pour yeah. the the um, soup into the cartons? We, well, the machine itself existed in carton filling. You know, so the carton erection and generation of the carton as a, as a receptacle for milk existed, but the filling system was completely different because it was cold milk with no bits in it. So that just didn't work. We had to take the rip the entire center of that machine out and then come up with something that would work. And we kind of thought, okay, that's going to be a challenge, but, you know, I mean, it's not going to be the major challenge. It turned out to be the major challenge, the major challenge. 18 months we spent trying to put liquid soup with bits in it. Let me, let me explain it like this. Let's say you've got, you've, got, you've got four buckets. No, let's say you've got one bucket and you've got four marbles and you've got four egg cups and you've got these four marbles at the bottom of this bucket and it's full to the brim of liquid and it's hot, right? And you need to pour this liquid into these four egg cups and make sure that in each egg cup when you're done, each egg cup has a marble. Okay. Now, that's a ridiculous thing to even want to do. It and is. We didn't even know that's what we wanted to do until we started to do it. But trying to get the right number of bits into each carton. I mean, it sounds ridiculous today, but it, we struggled with it no end. And that proved the biggest challenge. 18 months we took to get this right. Because we couldn't launch a product if we had one carton of chicken full of chicken and the other carton full of <laughs> liquid. I mean, and that's where, we, that's where we started. So we really underestimated the, 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 you know, what it needed to get that right. And, and this is where I kept thinking it'd be great if, if we had some industrialists or some technologists who could come in who would do it before, but nobody had done it before. And how much did this all cost and where did you get the money from? Yeah, that was, that was the other thing. It's like, you know, we did raise some money from friends and family to get us going. And, and it's like, you know, 18 months later, we're thinking, is this ever going to work? And, you know, knee deep in soup and more soup on the walls and the ceiling that was ever in a carton. It, it was a bit hairy because all that money that we had raised, well, that little bit of money we had raised because we didn't bank on 18 months later not having it sorted, was running out. So, so what we had to do then was go to a VC firm um, which was fine. You know, we're going to a VC firm, but we didn't have everything pinned down. We didn't have a contract with the retailer. We didn't have everything thought through. We didn't really know how this was going to end up. We we hoped and we thought and we and we were confident, but we couldn't prove to a VC, which is of course, of course, any major investor, institutional investor, will want to see. Yes, well, my return on investment is going to be what? And we're thinking, well, if everybody go, everything goes well, it'll be this. But what's this bit that has to go well? And <laughs> there's quite a lot undone. So we had to convince these guys to give us uh, a hell of a lot of money because we not only had to build a brand, which was New Covent Garden Soup Company, we also had to build a factory because nobody made fresh soup. We couldn't go and outsource this. Later in life, 
other projects and other business that I set up, we outsourced manufacturing, and it was appropriate, and, and, and we could do that. But nobody made fresh soup, so I couldn't find a fresh soup manufacturer. We had to do it ourselves. And then we had this 18 months, which we thought was going to be maybe five or six months to actually do it. Um, and so they said, well, if you go and get a retailer, we'll give you the money to build a factory. And we said, well, we kind of need to build a factory in order to get the retailer. <laughs> kind of chicken and egg on both sides. So we went to, we went to Waitrose. Uh, and this was 1987. Because Waitrose were a big UK supermarket chain at the time. They were, they were reasonably big. They weren't the biggest, which is why we went to them first. So, so there would be Tesco's and Sainsbury's and, and uh, Asda. They were bigger. But, but Waitrose were a reasonable side. They were a national UK uh, retailer. That's right. Um, uh, but they also had a name for giving you know, small guys uh, a leg up. Because they wanted to have the variety. They wanted to have the new idea before other retailers. Um, so they, they were very open to conversations with us. And, and I remember we went to, to, to talk to, to, to Waitrose. And again, this is naivety for you. And we didn't really know what we were doing and who we were talking to. But we had spoken to others who had supplied retailers. And they said, retailers keep their cards very close to the chest. They don't really let on if they really are keen on you or not. They're, 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 they're shrewd negotiators. Um, they know what they want and they figure it out and they get it from you, um, probably at a better price than you intended to give it to them. Um, and we thought, okay, all right, well, we, we'll just rock up because, okay, these, these, these VC guys want to give us money, but we want to have, in our case, we decided Waitrose would be the best retailer to start with. If we can get Waitrose on the hook, we'll go back to Apex was at the time, who we were now a much bigger VC and much larger international scope. We'd go back to Apex and say, we have Waitrose, give us some money, we'll build a factory and then we'll supply Waitrose. So we'll close off that, tri that triangular, that we're, triangulation that we we're trying to make work. Um, and so, because we knew that Waitrose wouldn't say yes on, the day, on day one, because we were told they were, they were going to you know, be professional negotiators and, and, and keep us hanging. So we went into Waitrose and explained this, showed the product, demonstrated the product. And Waitrose went, great, we love this kind. When, when can you start supplying? And, and I'm looking at Andrew going, uh, well, uh, September. And I know what Andrew's thinking. He's thinking, John, what September? Which September? I mean, we're, we haven't got this ready yet. This was kind of like April. And I only said September because soup is a kind of a seasonal product, right? It, you sell a lot more soup in the winter than you do of in the Of course. Summer. It really does rocket in, well, August is dead because everybody's away on holidays. And, and then people, you know, it's almost like people pack up the barbecue and kids go back to school and start, people start buying soup and don't buy salad. It's, it's, it's almost you can set your watch on, on this shift of consumer behavior. So that much we knew. Um, and, but Waitrose went, okay then, great. Well, come back in a few weeks and tell us more details about your plans. Um, and, and we'd love to take your product in September. And we're going, great. So we're walking down the high street of, where is it? Uh, where, I can't believe, I can't remember where Waitrose is now, but just outside London. Bracknell, that's where it is, Bracknell. Not far from Reading, where I went to university. Like, I had come 360 on me very quickly. We were high-fiving down, down the high street, went to the, went to the pub for a quick drink, and then, of course, the elephant in the room spoke up. I went, guys, uh, you've just committed to a national retailer. You haven't got a factory. You haven't even got the technology right, pinned down. How are you actually going to do this in whatever it was, like five or six months? Um, so, you know, the, the, the euphoria quickly evaporated into... Panic! How, how are we going to actually do this? But if we hadn't said yes, I'm not sure if we'd ever would have got the listing. You know, so you, you kind of like just got to be in a situation and take advantage of an opportunity like that, as as an entrepreneur does all the time. And then once you actually did get the manufacturing going and you started supplying Waitrose, how quickly did you manage to build up the company after that? Yeah, there was a few steps along the way there, but, but we we because we had a small little pilot plant. 
attached to Reading University where we were doing our trials. So we kind of turned that into a factory, although it wasn't anything like a factory. But we, we got 130% of the capacity out of that little out, output to, in order to get us moving and supply Waitrose. So we did manage to get going, but it was just by the seat of our pants. And, and luckily, they never came to look at this so-called factory because it wasn't a factory. It was, it, they would have shut us down and they would have said, guys, you don't know what you're doing. And they would have been right. So we got the money from APAX. We built our factory in London all very, very quickly. It was a crazy, crazy time. Um, and very quickly after that, we had to go to Tesco's because once you kind of prove that you can supply Waitrose, then you, then you have to be able to prove from a consumer perspective point of view that you can supply to a major retailer. And there are different, you know, there's different socioeconomic, especially then, less so now perhaps, because people are easy to say, oh, well, it works in Waitrose because it's a premium retailer. And what are you doing? You're charging £1.10 again? Oh, well, that, that's, yeah, I can understand how that works in Waitrose. That will ever work in Asda or Tesco. So we had to prove it, w- it would. And also we had built this factory, so we had to fill it up. We were, like, producing 10% to fill or to, or to supply just to Waitrose. So it very quickly then turned into building a factory to building a brand. And that was a complete, it's almost like two separate businesses, building a manufacturing facility to supply and then building a brand to actually generate demand. Because one is selling and the other is marketing, if you like. Um, so we had to do those in parallel and it was, it was a huge adventure. It was absolutely crazy. We had a tiger by the tail in terms of demand. There was nobody else doing fresh sheep because nobody thought it would work. And into the early 90s, we started in 88 really, into the early 90s, we were the only brand on shelf. And then everybody woke up to the fact that, oh, there's something in this fresh soup. And Tesco started to do it, and Campbell's came into it, and Baxter's came into it, and quickly left again, because they couldn't deal with the issues of chill distribution, which is where we had built up an expertise. But everything was seat of the pants. Everything was, was you know, we, we were making so many mistakes along the way. Luckily, I still say luckily, none of them were terminal. But one or two of them could easily have been terminal, and we wouldn't have known. It would have been, you know, And then you, you sold the business. Absolutely, yeah, that was always what the intention. What do you mean, absolutely? It was always the intention, because was this not something that you put so much love and effort into that you wanted to sort of continue it and just continue to grow? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about putting so much love and effort into it, and it dominated my entire existence, and I had no time for anything else. There was no social life, there was no anything, but all-consuming, con- all absolutely. But it wouldn't have been possible to do it any other way if you weren't all-consuming uh, and just put everything you possibly had behind this. But the intention was always to sell the business. Now, we thought we'd sell in five years' time. That's another element of naivety. We thought we'd set the business up and sell it on to somebody who made, who wanted to get into fresh soup, who was in canned soup. You know, we could sell it to Campbell's or Heinz or something like that back in the, in the early days. Um, so the intention was always to, to, to sell it. Um, but it took us 10 years to get to the point. And, of course, that's one of the, one of the challenges you have as an entrepreneur. Because you, you say, I ask an entrepreneur sometimes, you know, when is it wrong? When do you want to sell your business? And they'll say, um, give me two years because I have this to do and that to do. And I never did this bit quite well. And this opportunity has come up. There's always more things to do and add value to the ultimate exit um, opportunity. So, and that's okay until you come back in two years. And guess what? The answer is two more years because I've got this to do and that to do. And, and that is a constant cycle. And that is one of the problems with entrepreneurs is that they constantly see opportunities and they never actually deliver all of them, but deliver some of them, which is pretty, pretty good. Um, so we thought five years would be about right, and it took us actually 10 years to realize the value. Um, but we, 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 we just had to keep up with demand. I mean, those 10 years went by like that because it was like running from one challenge and one success to the next, and each success brought its own challenge. And who did you sell to? And did you make enough money out of it that actually justified the previous 10 years? That's a great question. I've never been asked before how you kind of 
balance out all that anguish um, and 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 hard work and application and, and fun clearly as well. Oh, listen, I wouldn't, I wouldn't absolutely. Uh, fun is the first thing actually, and then after that, you know, you, you kind of think all you know. You think of your childhood and you think of your past. It's always about the fun days you think of, right? And soup had lots of fun days, but it was a huge challenge. And especially we trying to get soup into cartons. It was like we were facing situations where I, this is not going to work. So, well, it's not going to work. It means it's like all over. They, you know, the whole effort was relying and, on But then when right. you did make it work, this, it must be exhilarating. Yeah, no, it is. That is the upside. That, that is the roller coaster life of an entrepreneur, which I was completely unprepared for, by the way. I don't forget, I was a scientist. Although, you know, you go back to my early childhood and being a farmer and all the rest, there were a lot of things that prepared me for, for entrepreneurship, perhaps. Oh, but only in hind- hindsight. But I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. But I wouldn't have changed a day of it because it was so exhilarating and so rewarding. And back so to who did you sell to and was yeah, it for yeah. enough? So we sold to a company called Daniels. Now, Daniels were a company at the time who... When they bought soup, they doubled their revenue, so they were very small already. And Daniels became much, much, much bigger. And they went on a huge acquisition drive and added a lot more businesses to their brands. They wanted to build a whole range of brands, from soup to nuts is the term. Uh, And they started with soup, literally. And they added a chilled uh, dessert business, uh, fruit business, uh, and a ready meals business over the subsequent years. So soup was one of the early acquisitions, or New Covent Garden was one of the early acquisitions. so it wasn't Heinz, but Heinz had come in, burnt their fingers on, uh, on fresh soup and left again. They spent lots of money on educating the consumer about fresh soup, which is great, because uh, our sales rose. Theirs did too, but then they screwed it up and they had they backed out and left, and left us to it. So, so, you know, Heinz did a great job. Um, but ultimately, uh, oh, absolutely. You know, even when I think of all the bad days and the tough times, first of all, I learned a huge amount. So I wouldn't change any of that because it prepared me for everything that came afterwards. Um, and it was a good exit come back to your real question absolutely all the shareholders we all got out at the same time we sold in 19, January 1998 I remember it so well we spent all of 1997 selling the business and it, but we were at the right we were ready we were absolutely ready you know although it was a, an adventure and you know a, a, a huge learning experience and we were a, ha- a bunch of happy amateurs really trying to figure things out and luckily we figured most of the critical stuff out just in time um, we were ready, ready to go on and do something else by then imagine anyone listening to this who is involved in their own business or who is thinking of their own business will be highly engaged by that story but I think equally they may be interested by what happened next because it didn't work out for you did it? That's right that's right you would have thought that anybody is anybody in the world that knows anything about fresh soup it'd be me <laughs> the, 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 the guy who I hate saying invented it but certainly designed the process to make it possible between Andrew and myself we had figured a lot of stuff out the hard way um, so now I knew a lot about fresh soup and I knew a bit about the food industry and I probably thought I knew a bit about life as well. And uh, th- I have to say there was a, probably a little edge, not a huge much, too much, but a little edge of arrogance there as well because it was coming off a huge success, my first one, you know, this is what life's like. You just, you know, apply yourself and it's successful. 
And that was naivety again. But I went because you decided to go to the United States. I went to the States. Yeah, I always wanted to go to the States. Uh, back to Carl Lewis, you referred to earlier. I, I had I had ambitions to go to the Olympics and didn't go because I got injured. And there was always a kind of romance attached to going to the States uh, to do something. And I thought, here's my opportunity. Let's go and build a business out there. You know what? Let's, let's not just do that. Let's build a soup business out there. And uh, let's let's get everybody together that you know some new shareholders, some old old shareholders, existing shareholders. And that's what I did. Um, went out to the States. We went to California actually. Uh, our idea initially was to build a factory in California and build one then also on the East Coast and um, grow a successful brand and sell it again, like, you know, 10 years. I knew, I knew it took about 10 years. I wasn't going to make that mistake. But I made so many others. And uh, it, was, it was a very interesting experience. And, and people ask me would I change anything about it. And of course, I'd change it to make it successful. But, but it was another huge, completely different, unexpected learning experience. So, you know, you kind of think... Of course, my third business was successful after that, but that's a different story yet again. But we went out to the States, and, and we did a lot right, frankly. We, believe it or not, we made soup in this factory I talked about earlier in London and flew it out on Virgin Airlines. Yeah, we made soup. Hang on, fresh soup? Yeah, You're not flying it across the Atlantic. That seems a bit counterintuitive. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it's, it's not means or the basis of setting up a business, but it is a means of understanding the market. Um, so we could get physically get soup into American mouths and ask them and understand how the distribution worked and figure out who the retailers were. So we had a real product. We could just, it was the wrong product. It, was, it wasn't just, you know, the difference between tomato and basil and tomato and basil, which is, which is a joke, <laughs> but it, there's a lot of truth in it as well. We had to figure out what flavors, especially the Californian uh, consumer wanted. And the Californians are more kind of, you know, um, first, uh, first mover initiative and, 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 and that they were willing to try new things. So it was a good place to start. Um, so we did. We flew stuff, stuff out there. We had a man in a van selling soup in the Bay Area. And, and we learned a huge amount from that experience. Um, so we got a lot right with, with, with the soup business. It was called Glencoe Foods. We got a, a lot right, but ultimately it didn't work, which was a killer because I had brought, as I said earlier, shareholders from the UK. I had convinced shareholders in the US. I had uh, brought people together to work. And the, you know, so, so the funding and operating the plant and bringing staff together was what I spent a lot of my time based on the fact that I knew what I was talking about because I had done it successfully for 10 years in the UK. And all I can say is, you know, I think it's, I, 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 I always misquote this, this quote, but I think it was Mark Twain or somebody like that that said, the UK and the US are two countries divided by a common language. And it's so true. Because we take it for granted. I'm, okay, I'm Irish, but coming from the UK as a business uh, environment, we, we kind of think a lot of time that it's the same. They speak and English. How is it different? Oh, there's so many differences. Uh, I mean, like, you know, we're in pretty good company, by the way, because, you know, Green Corps went out and came back, and Tesco's went out and came back, and, and, and we went out and came very much back with our tail between our legs. Um, I guess, first of all, the Americans have a different, what I would call, triangular equation in terms of why they buy food products. You know, we got the, the price, quality, convenience triangle, which is different here. The, the Irish market is similar to the UK market in that although the UK market has been depressed on price, much more so than here, uh, I think the Irish market is much more focused on quality and convenience, but it's still much closer to the U, UK model, whereas the US is much more focused on, on, on convenience, 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 and there's a bit of quality and there's some price. Uh, they have bigger refrigerators, as everybody knows, but that's, that's not by accident, because they shop like once every fortnight. Whereas we don't, certainly these days don't do that anymore, but back then we shopped every week uh, to, fill, to fill our fridge. Um, so shelf life was important. We had to increase our shelf life of our product. Now we had 21 days in the UK. 21 days is more than enough in terms of our fresh products. Yeah? 52 days is what we had in the States, and everybody thought that was fine. 
You put 52 days on anything in the chiller here, people will laugh at you and say, well, that's not fresh, so that doesn't make any sense. Whereas, so the, the, the perception is different, and they're much more willing to pay for convenience than that rather than quality. Anyway, that was the consumer. And then the second thing was we built a factory in, in, in California because we had to build one in, in, in the UK. And we didn't really have to build one in the US, but I thought we wanted to put in a carton again, and I thought that would be our major, uh, major benefit, a major USP, a major competitive advantage. And probably, with a great deal of hindsight, we probably should have outsourced, because we could have outsourced it. There were outsource opportunities, but I was dead against that, because that would be giving away our technology, or at least you know, not protecting our IP. So that cost a lot of money again, and we probably should have learned from our experience in, in the UK and spent our money and our efforts building the brand and not worrying so much about the, 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 the product. And the third thing I'd say, there were, there were, there were 20 things probably, but the, there were three major things. The third of the, of, of the three that I think stood out were that, um, and nothing to do at us, or not our fault really, was that a company called Best Foods at the time, they owned a NOR or Knorr brand in uh, in the US, they didn't own it in, the, in Europe, a German brand originally. They used, the, they wanted to take that brand into the chiller cabinet. So they wanted to take Nor Soup into the chiller. And they approached us very early on, like very prematurely, to the extent that we were very cautious and mistrusting of their intentions. We thought they were just trying to get our technology. Not that actually our, in hindsight our technology was that wonderful, but at the time we thought it was everything. And they approached us to buy us. And um, it was a long, drawn-out process because we were very r resistant to start with. And then we kept getting being dragged in because they were very insistent. And subsequently, way past the, uh, way past the event, I, I then found out that they were genuine. They did want to, want to buy us. But we took quite a while about it. Um, and we became distracted from building our brand and sticking to the knitting and doing what we should be doing properly. And I, it's almost like a, a, a car crash in slow motion. I could see this happening but still for some reason allowed it to happen. Of course, when people are talking to you about buying your business and, 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 and paying certain amounts of, uh, for your business at a time when you haven't really realized that value, you, you kind of get drawn into that conversation. Anyway, they were ready to do the deal. They were ready to buy this little business in its infancy, which hadn't turned a profit yet. And then Unilever bought Best Foods. I remember this well, because Niall Fitzgerald came to this uh, building, uh, head office of, of, of Best Foods. And I just explained for some listeners, Niall Charles, the head of Unilever, is a Limerick man originally, who's yeah. become one of the most successful Irish businessmen ever overseas. Absolutely, well known. Uh, and, and, but but I, I, I bumped into him at a time when he had come in to buy the business that was buying us, and he said, or you know, the, the, their M&A department said, okay, stop all M&A, stop, stop buying any businesses, You've, especially buying any businesses that own assets, like factories, because Best Foods have too many assets and too many factories as it is, and of course, we were top of the list. We were literally at the 11th hour, 12th hour, we're ready to sign. All this detail had been worked out, and the deal was pulled from under our noses. And we had to go back to run our business again, which we had kind of neglected for two seasons, which wasn't, it's like probably 18 months. And you can't neglect a business at that stage of development for 18 days, never mind 18 months, frankly, because things go south very quickly. And we really couldn't recover the situation. So that was our own fault, really. Even and did you lose a lot of money on that? A lot of the money that we made, I guess it depends who you talk to, but a lot of the shareholders did and reinvested in uh, the US business. I certainly, you know, thought that's what I was going to do because I thought nothing is a certain bet. But I thought again, I knew a lot about how to make new carbon, gar well, how to make fresh soup work in the states, based on what I knew worked in the UK. So, it, to be honest, the issue was less the money and more letting people down. Uh, you know, people I told, I know what I'm talking about. Look what I've done. This is what I'm going to do for you. 
get on, get on the ride. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're always selling. You're always selling the opportunity. You're selling yourself. You're selling the potential. You're selling your business. You're always selling to, if there's not shareholders, you're selling it to, to staff because you want to bring them on board and you can't really afford them yet. And you're selling your product to the retailers and you're selling your product to the consumer. You're always selling. So, so that's fine. Um, but I had brought people on board on the belief that they knew what I was talking about. And my projections, we were going to do this, this, and this. And of course, we never did any of it. And what did that do to your self-belief and self-confidence? Yeah, it was rock bottom. It was rock bottom. It's easy to look back now and say that it was the bottom. You never know when the bottom is because you have to, yeah, you, you hopefully come out of it and you say, okay, that was the bottom. Because you were what age at this stage? <sighs> what age? Well, so when did we, we were about to sell the US business 2002. What 2002 would it have been? So if I was born in 1964, you're going to have to help me out yet? You'd have been 38. Uh, 38. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> I was kind of thinking, that can't be right. I might have felt like I was 28. <laughs> Innocent and naive. Okay, so that failed. And oh, yeah, it failed big time. Against, against the backdrop of it really should have worked was the expectation. Certainly, maybe if not in others, certainly from where I was coming from. But you went again, but not in soup this time. Well, you see, this is the thing about it. It would have been, and people said to me, you're a masochist, right? I mean, come on, you've had one out of two is pretty good strike rate. And um, Yeah, but well, at 38, were you going to go and look for a job for somebody? I know. I, I couldn't face that either because w- I'd never had done that before. And, and it's not that I couldn't take, you know, somebody telling me what to do. I'd, I'd be well able to maybe, but, but I just, you know, never had. So I didn't really know what that was like. But to be honest, Matt, it wasn't really any of those things. It was, it was, it was all about what failure does to you, especially in the back of success. And, 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 but there was no way I was going to go out on a failure. There was no way I was going to go out on a failure. Because that's what happens, you know, if you go out in a failure, you are a failure. Nobody remembers what you did before. You know, it's like football, you know, it's, it's like your last game of football. How well did you do it? If, especially if it's the final. People only remember the one you lost, really. Um, so, especially, well, maybe they don't, but I would only remember it. It's, it lives with you a long, long time. And I think, you know, I say these days, don't be afraid of failure. And don't, you know, embrace adversity and, 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 and you know, try to get away from constantly fearing failure. And it's such an easy thing to say and a much more difficult thing to do. But I am, I am convinced that if the third business it was, was a success, and we'll get onto that in a minute, it was back in the UK and it was a different kind of, but it was a food brand. If the third business was a success, it was only because the second business was a failure. It wasn't to do with the first business being a success. Yeah. I had to prove to mostly myself, I guess others too, but mostly myself that, that, that I could do it again. And because your mind plays really, you know, funny tricks with you, you, you kind of think, how did that happen? I mean, I should have known this. I did know this. I knew it before. Why couldn't I repeat the success? A lot of things were different, but you know, not everything's ever going to be the same. Um, and you, you, you kind of begin to question yourself to the extent you say to yourself, well, was, was Newcomer Garden uh, you know, a, a success despite myself? Would it have been even more successful if I hadn't been there? You know, you play, you're, you're in a very dark moment and you kind, of think, you kind of think of all sorts of weird things. And I think it's appropriate that you do think of those weird things and, and then be done with it. So do do a post-mortem on a failure and figure out what was wrong about it so you can avoid it again. But then get out of that mindset and move on and kick on. And that's, luckily, what I did with Little Dish. I didn't do it straight away, but I went to say, okay, I'm going to have to do something new or something different and prove to myself, above all, that... Uh, that I can make something successful. So uh, what I'd say really in the context there is, you know, you can't make a career out of failure. I'm not suggesting that at all because that's clearly not going to work. But failure is not a great place to be because it hurts like hell, but it's a great place to have been because it makes you really want to make sure you never go there again, right? 
So having felt that pain and that down and, and thinking, you know, introspection of all that stuff that went on in the States, and, I, I, and your, you know, your mind goes all the way through it and through it and through it, and could I have made a different decision here and different decision there, whereas with New Covent Garden, we had no time for that. We were just, you know, riding the wave. And yes, there were lots of, lots of decisions we got wrong. And if you look at it and superimpose one against the other, there were more decisions we got wrong with New Covent Garden than we did with Glencoe Foods in the States, really. So what are you going to learn from that? And the thing is, okay, that's just life. Let's just get on with that and then find something new to do. And it would have been in the, new, in, 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 uh, the food and drink space by definition because that's what I know. But I had to do something that was going to work. And I'm not saying I'm out now and finished now or anything, but we had the third business was a great success. And it was you know, probably even more successful than New Covent Garden from a commercial point of view. So briefly, tell us what was it? So Little Dish is, uh, it's, well, it's still very much in existence, but basically we wanted to design a healthy, convenient, tasty meal for children. Now, when I say children, I mean everything from 12 months up. So not babies. They're very definitely weaned and onto solid food. So 12 months through till school-going age, five, six, seven. Which can be very important for parents who maybe, say, are sending a child out to childcare and some places say, send your own food. Absolutely. An awful lot of parents like having what they regard as a very good nutritional dish. They may not have time for the reason the child is in childcare is because both parents may be working or whatever, or a single parent is out working. So they want something that they don't have time to make themselves, but they feel that their child is going to have a good meal the following day while in care. You've clearly been there, Matt. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. No, no, you, yeah, perfect. Perfect. It's a question of, you know, people also thought about ready meals because that's, they people, oh, ready meals, that's made in a factory and uh, I'm not going to, you know, give my, 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 my children ready meals. You, first of all, you know, you've got this guilt complex that first of all, as a, as a parent or a mother, or whatever, you should be cooking yourself for your child. So that's one problem or challenge. Um, but the other is, you know, I'm not going to give them stuff out of a factory. But we wanted to make sure that, you know, there were small portions and they were very nutritionally balanced and there were the provenance of the ingredients. So everything that you would care about yourself, but didn't have the time to do, to your point, yeah, in terms of the convenience. And that's what Little Dish was about. And then subsequently, our, our, you know, then we also developed a range of snacks for out-of-home out of consumption. But what sort of food meals would you have made? Yeah, you know, the typical range of meals that you would recognise for adults, but for design for kids. So fish pie, macaroni cheese, cottage pie, shepherd's pie, the typical, you know... I guess, English staples, you know, that, that, that were, because it was a UK business again, it was, it was back in London. Um, so yeah, so, so fish pie was actually our bestseller. And there were great, great reasons for that. We didn't really think about it at the time, but fish pie was such a good seller because it was complicated to make. You know, there's a lot of different stuff that go into a fish pie, if you think about it. So you could make probably a macaroni cheese yourself, even if you weren't a good, good cook. But you're making it for yourself and for your kid at a different time because they've got to go to bed early. So it's, you know, back to your point about convenience. So you probably could cook it, but you didn't, especially if Little Dish was available. Um, and people couldn't really handle fish. It's a kind of a smelly thing you take into your kitchen and you're not, people just are not confident cooking fish. So fish pie was our bestseller. And it was our highest margin, so it was great. So we kicked off with that in 2000 and hopeless with dates yet again, but okay, in 2007. But, yeah, yeah, but how difficult was it to get going in? Did you find it difficult to raise finance on the basis of you'd had a failure? Or were there enough enlightened investors who in the American way will think, well, the person who has failed is possibly the better person to invest in again? And also, when you were out, and this is relevant to what you do now, when you were pitching, do you think what was important was the quality of the product that you had to offer, or was it almost the way you were selling it would be what investors would back? Five questions in there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to believe that we were talking to 
enlightened investors because I have become, through that very dark experience, a more enlightened investor now. And I look at failed experiences and I'm really interested to know what, not so much what's driven the failure, but what the pers- that person has learned from that failed experience. So, so, so if, if I'm, not that I'm recruiting for myself anymore because I don't have a business anymore. When I'm, I help a lot of small businesses these days. When I'm talking to them and helping them at recruitment, it's, it's, it's all the usual questions and you know, all, all the type of experience and chemistry and fit and culture. And also, you know, tell me something that didn't go well. Or, you know, in my case, if I, if I ever had a CV, and I never did, but it's right there in black and white. You know, that business, that whole five years in the States didn't work. So it's really obvious. But really, what, why and what did you learn from it? And my, my answer to that question, if it was posed to me, is Little Dish was the answer to get it right. And so when we were talking about, uh, you know, raising money from, from shareholders for Little Dish purposes, it, it was all about, obviously, New Covent Garden. Um, but it was also about Denko Foods and what we got wrong and what we would look out for as warning signals to get wrong again. And no two businesses are the same, ever, ever. No matter it's branded and it's in the same country or not, or, and it's the same industry, always different circumstances. The consumer changes, retail structures change, everything changes. You know, we're talking about vertical farming earlier. That uh, didn't exist back then. So, so, and technology changes. So lots of differences, but ultimately it's kind of like you're talking about the entrepreneur. It's a question of what that person has learned from adversity. If it wasn't a failure in terms of a business, there aren't many businesses that people fail at and come out of it. So, so that's, a, that's a great example to use. And, and maybe I'll answer the question in a slightly different way. When I'm sitting on the other side of the table these days as a potential investor in a business, there are three things I look for in a business. There's 20, 30, 40 things you look for in a business. But there's three things that constantly come to the top that if these three things are wrong, you probably walk away. Whereas if the other things are wrong, you could probably figure out a way to fix them and you might stay in. And those three things are product, might sound obvious, but when I say product, I mean product that really meets meets the need of a consumer. So it's not just product, it's a product that resonates with a consumer and changes their life in some way, like fresh soup versus tin soup. Little dish, nutritional, healthy, ready meals for kids provides you with the convenient solution that you just explained. So it changes people's lives uh, in a little way, but enough way to make them go out and spend, you know, one pound, 10 or two euros, 50, whatever it is on this, that solution product. So that's consumer insight and your product meets that need. Number two, scalability. So there has to be enough of those people that'll actually buy enough of that product over time. And you can, scalability also means unit, unit economics, so you can make some margin out of it. And the third is the entrepreneur, which is back to your question. The third is the entrepreneur. And actually, over time, the last few years, I'd probably switch those around to be number one is the entrepreneur and the other two come next. Because you can maybe, maybe even fix a product. You need to go away and come back in terms of, you know, a, a conversation about investment and to say the product's now fixed. But you can't fix an entrepreneur or an average entrepreneur. An average entrepreneur, yeah, you can learn, you can become better, but you know, an average entrepreneur will probably remain an average entrepreneur and you'll probably have to surround them with a lot of advisors and, a lot of, and it'll be just a really difficult job as an investor to try and bring them with you. Whereas a good entrepreneur is a, a dream to work with. And if you had a, a pretty dodgy product or it wasn't quite right, that entrepreneur will figure it out quickly. So I always say it's you know, entrepreneur scalability and product. They're the three key things. And all this stuff can be wrong and you can put right. So come back to your question. I reckon that you know, the investors that we were talking to then recognized that. And I, you know, it, was, it was a team, it was a co-founder. I had somebody else with me as well. And we were cut very complementary so we could play to each other's strengths and weaknesses. And I guess that's what, that, that's what convinced shareholders to get involved. And how big did you build the business to before you sold it? So 
2006, I think we set it up. We, started, we launched in 2007. We sold it in 17, so it was a 10-year project. And it was a roughly about a 15 million revenue, 15 million sterling revenue at that stage. Yeah, roughly, give or take, annualized. Yeah. And the business has continued under new ownership? Yeah, that's right. We sold it. Uh, new Common Garden, we sold to a trade, Daniels. And Little Dish, we sold to private equity. So a private equity business bought that. Uh, company in 2017, a US private, US-based private equity business, because they wanted to take the business to the States. So they saw the success in the UK, and they saw that there was application for that in the States. And that's what they wanted to support. To support the UK business, but really launch it in the States. And again, did you make enough money out of it to justify the 10 years? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very definite answer. Private equity pay well, though, when they buy businesses, don't they? Uh, they, they well, they, well I, I mean, you know, the swings and roundabouts. I guess they do if they believe in the opportunity and the upsell. Yeah. So, of course, you've got to sell the upside. You know, it's not, you, you don't ever want to sell a business and say, this is the value of the business. You want to say, this is the value of the business in the future. And that you can realize that, that, that the benefit of that. So, scalability is so important, not just for a product, but of a business, too. Did they require you to stay on? Not me, no, no. They didn't. I was definitely getting out. I lived in Munich. I still live in Munich. So I was already kind of um, pulling back from the business. So let me get my dates right. I got to think about this so hard. But I think 2015, so two years before we sold the business, I pulled back from being the MD of the business to being uh, a non-executive. So I was kind of not halfway out, but I was I was had pulled back certainly by then, and had a pretty good succession plan of putting some strong people in so they were the ones that needed to stay with the business i had made myself uh, less critical of the business by then because i was not going to stay in because uh, i didn't want to be traveling between munich and london the business was based in london every single week anymore in the time we've left to us you're still involved in ireland and tell us about your involvements in ireland involved more in ireland now than ever before which is on purpose, yeah, that, that, was the, that was the intention. So 2015, pulling back from Little Dish, 2017, selling Little Dish, what do I do next? A lot of the stuff that I do now is still based in the UK, because a lot of my contacts are there. But I was very keen to get more involved in Ireland. And I started off by getting more um, involved in the Foodworks program, which is a, a, a program that's designed, it's really kind of a, uh, an incubator program that, 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 that encourages and nurtures and helps early stage um, food and drink entrepreneurs to get investment ready. And Enterprise Ireland Board B are involved in that. And Chagas. It's a three-way, those three agencies, Enterprise Ireland Board B and Chagas are involved in designing that program and running that program. And I'm one of the business business advisors to that program, which means I help bring the practical, sort of some of the practical elements that they they, they lecture and seminar and do workshops on. They introduce concepts of running a business. Every single aspect of running a business, they explain the theory and then the business advisors explain a bit of the practice and between the the two, they get to a point where and these businesses could be free revenue, very early stage. The whole idea is to get the businesses or the entrepreneurs in particular to investment ready stage. They can pitch to a shareholder to, to, to raise finance. And so I've been involved in that for five years now. In fact, this sixth year, I'm, I, I've changed my role slightly to become the investment advisor. Um, I'm not a business advisor anymore. So instead of get, going deep with three businesses, I now bore a spread, I guess, across all of the businesses. It's typically there's nine or ten businesses on the program any one year. So I get to meet all these businesses. And, and what sort of them. businesses are they? I mean, if they're, are they looking to sell just domestically in Ireland new added value products or are they looking for international sales? And how difficult is it also to find something new in the food business? Right, right. Okay, so, okay, so first, first, first that's, that's really interesting. interesting. Um, um, if you go back to those, those three, three criteria, criteria again, again, again I mentioned, so, you know, so, you know, product... product Entrepreneur, entrepreneur and scalability. And scalability. 
Um, and we'll get back into what we've been doing recently with the Reedsdale Food Fund to, to really help that food ecosystem here in Ireland. Uh, but you need scale, which means you have to have an international perspective. So you have to have ambition as an entrepreneur and very definitely have a product that is internationally relevant. So you have to build a supply to you know, international markets. And the obvious one to go, even post-Brexit, the obvious one to start with is the UK. really is, because it's just there. And the culture in terms of food consumption is very similar, and the retail environment is very similar, lots of similarities. Brexit makes it a bit more difficult than it used to be, but, it, but it's still the obvious place to start. And then there's Europe, and if your product is relevant and is ambient product, go to the States. I could tell you all about that. <laughs> Just to finish up, John, you left Ireland back in the mid-1980s when an awful lot of people emigrated from Ireland. Mm. You're now spending a lot more time back here probably in the last five years than you had done in the previous 30 years. How different is Ireland to you now as a place from which to build a business, do you think? There are lots of differences across the board, but particularly in terms of place to build a business. The first thing I'd say is uh, the UK and Ireland are two of the best places to start a business period and to start a food business in particular. Um, there's a huge you know, plethora of, of, of startups coming through, both the UK and Ireland. And much more so, I live in Germany, right? And much more so, and the Germans are very capable of being entrepreneurial, just not in the food industry. And the further south you go, the more traditional the food uh, preparation environment becomes. Yeah, think of south of Spain and Portugal and, and, and Italy and even south of France. Uh, whereas northern regions, uh, UK and Ireland, are much more about, you know, the, the retail environment is much more developed, the quality of the products are much better, etc. So it's a great place to start a business. Um, I think, you know, the, 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 the awareness of startups and the ecosystem of startups uh, in, in Ireland is fabulous, yeah, absolutely fabulous. And it, one example is the Foodbox program that I just explained. Yeah, if that didn't exist, you know, it really would be missed, if you know what I mean. And yeah. I, I explained to people in the UK, by the way, in Westminster and in local government, so guys, you should be doing something like this, you know, a, you don't have to even invent, reinvent the wheel. There's a wonderful program, it's called Foodworks, the Irish do it really well, why don't you go and look at it? In fact, I'll tell you about it. But they're preoccupied doing other things. So, so that just doesn't seem to ever have, have happened. So the Irish, really, I think the approach, and Bordbia in particular, supported by Enterprise Ireland with the money, but Bordbia in particular, over the last 10 years, five years in particular, have done a great job of supporting the infrastructure in terms of investment for the small businesses. Plus, they obviously take care of the large businesses too, and they do a lot of international plays for the, the dairy industry and the meat industry, etc., which Ireland is well, well known for, right? You think of Kerrygold, especially, you know, Kerrygold is very strong in Germany, as an example. Everybody knows about Kerrygold. Um, but the small businesses have, have a wonderful ecosystem to, to grow within, and I think one of the reasons we set up Re the Reedsdale Food Fund was to provide that early stage financial support, because it's not just enough to rely on the angel network Uh, to, to invest in small business. It's a great place to start, but you very quickly need to move on, especially if you have those three things that I mentioned before, a really strong product, um, an international scalability, and, a, and an ambitious entrepreneur. 
the one thing you need then is, is, is and can be often missing is the oxygen of, of funding and not just early stage funding but somebody that could be your investment partner over a couple of rounds you know the second round third round because if you have ambition guess what you're going to need to raise more money for all the right reasons it can grow your business and just to finish because it does strike me this country has become brilliant in fundraising for technology mm. in particular and for funding and there's been incredible successes on the back of the foreign multinationals that are based here and then the university right. collaborations and the rest of it. Given that we have a background in this country in food and food production, do we do well enough in that? Not well enough. We're doing okay. We're doing pretty well. You know, if you, it depends who you're comparing against. Uh, in the early stage growth uh, in, the small, in the startup sector, we're doing okay, doing better than other um, regions of Europe, but still not doing well enough because the opportunity... It's it, it's really obvious the investment in, in in tech, right? And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's been so, so successful in Ireland. That's not to take away from that, but you know, I think a lot of time investments in tech, you know, you kind of hopeful that you get the next um, unicorn, right? There, there are very few. There are no unicorns in food and drink. It just doesn't happen. I mean, there's one or two maybe, like Fever Tree or something, but they're so much the outlier, and they're not Irish anyway. Um, but you know, little acorns, yeah, and you got to grow. And we got we got we got a whole bunch of businesses. You know, we got the largest no frills airline business. We got the largest uh, aviation financing business. We got the largest food um, ingredients business in Kerry Foods. We got the largest. Um, I can't think of the other. Well, you've got like the CRH as a major international. Thanks. That's exactly the one I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah, that was the obvious one. Yeah. So we've got a whole bunch of bit, but you know, they haven't scaled based on the ability to, to grow in Ireland. They've scaled internationally. That's how they're the largest. So there's a huge opportunity for our food businesses to do something approaching that. Yeah. And I know there's only one or two large food businesses, but they're evidence of the fact that you can scale. So long as you have those three elements to start with. But if you have the funding as well, then what can go wrong? A hell of a lot. But yeah, at least you got a leg up. At least you de-risk the opportunity. And at least you're not starving those early stage businesses of the oxygen of investment. And I think, you know, up until, up until I'm not saying Reedsdale is the only answer, but up until now, we haven't had the institutional support to build on that ecosystem. And I think that's the element that's been, that's been missing. So maybe we'll come back in five years' time to answer that question in hindsight. But I think, you know, we're a much better place than we were. John Stapleton, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast. Not at all. I enjoyed myself immensely. It's been great fun. Thanks, Matt. And that was today's edition of the Magnified with Matt Cooper series. If you enjoyed it, well, tell a friend, please. Share it via social media and subscribe as well to hear each new edition each week in association with MG. So from now, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you very much for having been with us.